the glass half full or half empty? Chances are you have probably asked this question and have been asked this question more times than you can count. It's an easy way to quickly gauge who the Leslie Nopes are and who the Ron Swansons are. It's a quick shield and dismissal from criticism about whether or not you're hopelessly positive or critical all the time. I just see the glass half empty. It's who I am. It's the intro to philosophy question about whether or not absolute truth exists and what role subjectivity plays in the pursuit of truth. In high school, my nickname was Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh because I carried the same gloomy, woe is me, everything is awful, pessimistic disposition as the stuffed donkey. In my world at the time, the glass was definitely half empty, and even that was being generous. And yet, despite the triviality of the question, it's still a useful diagnostic tool to help get a conversation started about how we approach big, complicated subjects. It illustrates that when tackling these big picture questions, that starting with something as simple as a glass of water and contextualizing the question in how much water is in it can be an easy launch pad. Obviously, the question isn't meant to be nuanced or comprehensive in the answer that you get, but it's meant to be a springboard, and it's a good springboard for that. And I say all of this because I recognize in the first episode of this podcast, I asked a lot of questions, and believe me, there are plenty more that will be asked along the way of this season, and it can be overwhelming to know where to even begin. Part of the problem is the scope of the subject matter we're dealing with here. We're asking questions about the things that we spend hours with each and every day, whether it's our phones, the internet, or our entertainment. We also aren't just concerned with asking questions about how these things are affecting us individually, though that's probably the best place to start. We're also asking how these things are affecting society and culture as a whole. The range alone is significant, and we haven't even factored in the implications of the questions that we ask. What are we going to find in the answers? What conclusions are we going to come to? And what are we going to do in response to them? Your answers might look differently than the ones I've come to and will come to over the course of this season, and the course of action might be more or less drastic. I am a social media manager. My job is to know how Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram work, both as a consumer of content and as a producer of content for those platforms. Leaving social media may not be an option for me, but it might be for you. On the flip side, you may not have a problem with being on your computer all day, but I know I do, and I've been trying to take steps to change that. Perhaps it would be easy to start with some ways that people, including Christians, have thought about technology through the ages. We're not the first people to wrestle with these questions, and we have a lot to learn from other thinkers who have gone before us just as much as we have to learn from present-day writers. I really appreciate the work that Heidi A. Campbell and Stephen Garner did in their work, Networked Theology, Engaging Faith in Digital Culture and how they summarize the work of science and religious scholar Ian Barber. Barber proposed three categories that represent the three most common responses to technology, and he called them technological optimism, technological pessimism, and technological ambiguity. 
These categories are not all-encompassing, and I imagine that none of us fully fall into one of these categories all the way, but I think that they can help give us a good starting point for making sense of the technology and media around us as we ask questions about them. Technological optimism is probably the easiest response for us to understand. I think it's safe to say that it's the default response of culture and society as a whole right now. It's the view that technology is what will usher us into a better, more peaceful world. As advances in science, medicine, engineering, and education are made, the world will become a better place. Ignorance and physical limitation will be overcome by an abundance of information and tools to accomplish what was previously difficult to do and perhaps even impossible. We can think of Tesla, the car manufacturer and their leader, Elon Musk, and the possibilities of a world run on electric vehicles instead of gasoline. We can think of services like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, which help us gain an understanding and control over who we are and where we've come from. We can think of Uber and Airbnb, which bypass the traditional transportation and lodging industries to make them more convenient, more adventurous, cheaper, and all of this happens through the technology that makes their services possible. Same with Apple, Amazon, Google, dozens of other powerful companies who make truly life-changing products or offer services that make life more convenient and stress-free than ever before. There's a unique Christian spin on technological optimism too, one that baptizes this optimism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and sees technology as a means of fulfilling the Great Commission. Social media makes it easier to connect with members in our congregation and stay in touch with them throughout the week. Live streaming platforms make it possible to live stream conferences, workshops, and seminars for those who want to travel and attend but can't get the time off or don't have the money to do so. Creatives, like those who are a part of the Austin Stone story team, are able to use their talents in filmmaking graphic design, storytelling, and other artistic talents to create beautiful works that convey the gospel in powerful and novel ways. Technological optimism knows that there are downsides and limitations to technology and to the media that we consume, but believes the benefits of current technology and the promises of future technology outweigh the downsides. Technological pessimism, on the other hand, is the opposite response. Technological pessimists don't believe that there's no upside to these new technological forces. They just believe, in general, that the negatives outweigh the positives. They believe the glass is half empty. The root of this belief is not unreasonable, and we all understand that in some ways, technology has come to take a life of its own and has grown beyond a tool for the benefit of humanity to being something that exerts control over us and makes demands of us that we would rather it not make. In addition, it creates a new in-group. You either adopt to this new technology and get with the times, or risk being left behind and on the margins of culture, society, and the workforce. 
Perhaps the best example of this is automation, and the possibility that someday major industries, such as the trucking and supply industry, could leave thousands upon thousands of drivers without a job as machines quite literally take over the driver's seat. Another example is how the quest for efficiency and performance, the things that we expect of our machines, trickle their way down to the way we treat ourselves and our fellow coworkers. Rather than seeing our employees as being made in the image of God, now they're cogs in the machine of productivity. Amazon is well known for having a culture that rewards workaholism and flattens out the needs of the individuals in the name of capitalistic competition. A New York Times expose of the company in 2015 painted a very dark and depressing behind-the-scenes picture of the company who guarantees free two-day shipping for their Prime customers. I'll link that expose in the show notes. Technological pessimists who hold to a Christian worldview rightly recognize that advances in technology and media can have a direct impact on those made in the image of God, either by making their jobs more difficult in response to advances in other fields, or by depriving them of work outright, and can cause them to drown in comforts and distractions that numb them to the urgency and need of a world that desperately needs the gospel. They recognize technology brings upsides and improvements, but they don't buy into the hype that those benefits make up for what's lost in the process. Technological ambiguity is in the middle between optimism and and pessimism. Unlike those views, this position sees technology in the social context that gave birth to it and makes use of it and examines how this technology came about and what it's being used for. And Campbell and Garner offered the example of a hammer to illustrate their point. In the hands of someone building a house, a hammer is a good thing. In the hands of a murderous madman, however, the hammer is a bad thing. What matters is the intentions of those who use the technology and the consequences of their use. Technology is neither inherently good or inherently bad. It can be both, depending upon the circumstances. Computers, for example, can be tools used for productivity, for studying, creativity, and work in one moment, and then used as a gateway for pornography in the next. In one moment, we can comment how much we love and miss our friends and family on social media, and in the next moment, we can tear down and destroy a stranger and a neighbor by our words. This response to technology recognizes the nuance and complexities that come with technology and media and strives to hold these diverse uses together into one complete mosaic. The problem, though, is that ambiguity can sometimes just be ambiguity. And sometimes taking an ambiguous stance is an easy way out and making firm statements where you need to make one. These three responses, as I said earlier, are not all-encompassing, nor do they not have their downsides. Technological optimists rightly get excited about the advances in technology that are being made in the world today, but they sometimes get too caught up in the hype and fail to do their due diligence in evaluating the technology in the process. There's no better example of this than biotech company Theranos 
who spent more than a decade hyping up their proprietary blood testing machine that could run a battery of tests with just a few drops of blood in one's home or nearby Walgreens. Turns out, it was all a complete, utter lie. And as John Carreyrou, a journalist for the Wall Street Journal, documents in his remarkable book, Bad Blood, this lie was only made possible by dozens of board members, doctors, the media, several other parties that got so caught up in the hype of what Theranos was doing that they were willing, and in some cases forced, to ignore the literally dozens of red flags that came their way. By contrast, technological pessimists rightly get concerned about the impact that new technology has and who loses out on these advances in the process. But they can sometimes lose sight of the fact that every benefit is going to have a cost of some kind. And sometimes that cost is just going to have to be a negative impact to an industry, to a person, to a livelihood. There will always be winners and losers, and we should know who the losers are and what they've lost and even see if we can mitigate that somehow. But we shouldn't pretend that technology can advance in such a way that it doesn't leave anyone on the outside looking in. And of course, those who fall into the technological ambiguity camp can use that ambiguity as a shield for making the appropriate moral judgment about technology in media and the impacts that they have, and they can just be content to wrestle with the implication of technology simply just as a mental exercise. There are two things that all three of these responses have in common. The first is that both camps agree there is some degree of good that comes with technology. And even though this podcast is aimed at getting us to ask questions about technology, this is something we always need to keep in mind. Technology does bring good things. As Tony Renke outlines in the introduction of his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, technology modifies creation, it pushes back the results of the fall, it edifies our souls, it upholds and empowers our bodies, and all of this happens under the direct supervision of God. The question is not whether or not good things have come from technology, but to what degree that the good ought to be held in tension with the bad. As Runke also notes, the iron that was incorporated into ancient farming practices to make cultivating the land easier is the same iron that made its way into the swords and spears and shields of warriors. Sometimes they used those to defend their land. Sometimes they used it for bloodshed and violence. Like every other gift from God, there are twisted perversions that arise when they're used without acknowledging the creator that they came from. Sex is a beautiful and wonderful gift meant for marriage, but it gets twisted into lust, into exploitation, and enslavement as an entire industry exists to reduce women into sexual objects. Food, which we not only need to live but are also given to use and delight in feasts and celebrations— becomes twisted into being a means of escape, an expression of a lack of self-control or a means of idolatry and pride. Houses and homes are given to us to be places of safety and shelter and security, but they can also become prisons of harm or abuse or laziness. Technology is no different, and these three responses that we've looked at in this episode all revolve around the idea that technology is good but it is not only good. The glass has water in it, but how much is up for debate. 
The other three things that all three of these responses have in common is that we live in a technology-driven world, and that's not going to change. Going back to a pre-technological time or living in a world completely divorced from the influences of technology is just not possible. To quote Campbell and Garner, Whether it be the vast vistas of possibility envisioned by the optimists, the bleak, oppressive world of technological determinism posited by the pessimists, or the ambiguity of those wrestling with technology, all agree that technology cannot be removed from human existence. Technology and media have become ingrained in our environment. This raises another big question. How did we even get to this point? What were things like before technology and media became ingrained in our environment the way that they are today? I can think back to a time before the internet, before it became pervasive everywhere, but what about before television, before phones, radio, and books? In order to make sense of the present, we need to be able to understand the past. And in the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we're going to go back to the beginning. And in the beginning was the Word. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast made possible thanks to the incredible talent of my good friend Andrew Akins, who has been handling the mixing, mastering, music production of this show, and has saved me an unbelievable amount of time in the process. This podcast is also possible thanks by my wife, Melissa, who helps me iron out these episodes and is willing to read these quotes for me. A huge thanks to Heidi Campbell and Stephen Garner's book, Networked Theology. If you're interested in a really thorough academic treatment on the subject, I highly recommend it, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can like our Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Digital Spell, where I'll be posting articles and other writings relevant to each week's episode throughout the week. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. New episodes will be popping up every Tuesday for the remainder of the year. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell. Digital Spell